Uh, well, like I said, it's, it's uh, Advent, it's the start of the church year. And um, every year the, uh, the, the church calendar begins with this month-long period of waiting. And if you th- consider that for a moment, there's great wisdom in that. You know, we certainly look back and celebrate all that Jesus has done for us, but we're waiting, right? We're really waiting for something. As Christians, we're waiting not just for something, but for someone, of course, for Jesus to return as he promised he would. So it's this simultaneous celebrating everything Jesus has done for us and acknowledging that there's a kingdom coming and we're waiting for that full and final uh, return of the Lord and and, and the fullness of his kingdom. So our our Advent series uh, for this season is called Waiting Room and we'll be looking at what the Bible says about our waiting Gladly, it gives us some guidance on how to wait well. So we'll think about that over these next four weeks. Today, we look at waiting with expectation, and we're going to read a passage from Mark 13 in a moment. But before we do that, let's pray together, shall we? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the great truth of the gospel that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened, that we live in a world where an incarnation has happened, that you did it, that you came to earth for the purpose of seeking and saving us lost people and calling us back to you. So God, thank you that you've revealed who you are and and what you're like. Would you do it again now by your spirit? Fill our minds and our spirits with what you want us to grasp from your word because it is upon your word we rely as we wait. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. We are reading today from the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, beginning at verse 24. Hear the word of the Lord. But in those days following that darkness, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when these things happen, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, 
or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Todd. Well, it's, uh, it's good really for every passage of the Bible, but for this one in particular, we, we need a little context to get, get to what Jesus was talking about. And you might have heard it said that a text without a context is a pretext, right? And there's, there's some setup that needs to happen uh, because in the, in the first verse that we read, we're picking up mid-chapter in the middle of chapter 13. In the first verse that we read, we saw this, but in those days following that distress, and I don't, I don't know what you do when you read the Bible, but I, I try to start asking questions when I read something like that. And, but in those days, okay, which days? Following that distress, well, what distress are we talking about? You know, it's pretty clear Jesus is about to describe a season he calls those days that follows something that was particularly distressing. So what's he talking about? I mean, how do we, how do we get our minds around this? Um, to, to start with that, we just have to rewind a little bit to the beginning of chapter 13 to see what Jesus was talking about. Here's what he said at the beginning of the chapter. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So at, at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple. And that was stunning to his disciples who were Jewish for, for multiple reasons. One, this thing was massive. I mean, Herod had upgraded Solomon's temple in a major way. These massive, huge stones. I, I remember a trip to the Holy Land when I was in seminary. We were with Ray Vanderlaan. And Ray's dad, uh, we learned on that trip, uh, was a mason. And on a previous trip, when Ray was standing in this very location, looking at one of these ginormous stones in the temple with his dad, his dad looked at that, kind of crossed his arms and said, that stone, that piece of rock right there, has got to weigh about 100 metric tons. Huge, huge, like massive, blow your mind. How they did it, no one knows. Like, un unbelievable, right? So there's, this whole thing is massive. And beyond being just physically large, Jewish folks thought the temple was the center of the universe because God lived there. And, and the building kind of portrayed that respect and that magnificent, I mean, gold everywhere, this whole incredible architectural wonder of the world kind of feel, but the spiritual center, the center of the universe. So when Jesus comes and just, you know, strolling along outside the temple mount says, oh yeah, you see all this? It's all coming down. I mean, you, you have to imagine your way into their experience as, as his followers. They were dumbstruck. What? I mean, first of all, how are you getting that 100 metric ton stone off that thing? And then second, how would God allow his house to be destroyed? This, this can't happen. I mean, they, they just didn't know what to say. But later on, they asked. Look at verse three. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? 
And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? When will the temple be destroyed? They wanted to know more about this, and they, and they wanted to know if there would be any perceivable signs, if they could kind of see this incredible day coming. And that's what Jesus unpacks in the first half of, of chapter 13, which we, we didn't read all of that. Um, but, but that's what comes right before the section we just read. So you ask, why does this matter to me? <laughs> why is this important? Because in our passage today, Jesus addresses two different things, the destruction of the temple and the timing of his return. So if we're interested in understanding what Jesus is actually saying, what he means, we need to understand that little bit of background so we can do some sorting in in what he said in our passage. So back to the original question. But in those days, following that distress, that distress refers to the war in Judea which would lead to the destruction of the temple. Now, Jesus was speaking these things about 40 years prior to that war actually happening, but it did happen, and Jesus' words were fulfilled. It's known as the first, uh, the first Jewish-Roman war in which the Roman army conquered Jerusalem and, and destroyed the city and uh, destroyed the temple. And those days refers to the time after that distress, after the destruction of the temple, but before Jesus' return. So that would mean like now. Right, after the destruction of the temple, but before his return. And with regard to Jesus' return, there, there is both great certainty and great uncertainty. You know, we can be absolutely certain that he will someday return to earth. There will be a day, a moment, when this will happen. We don't know when that will be, of course, that's the uncertainty, but we can be certain that it will happen, he promised it. At that time, said Jesus, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. It will happen. And on that day, Jesus said, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will will be shaken. I, I love what one commentator said about this, that, that those celestial things that won't be signs of his coming, uh, th- th- they'll go into confusion because he appears, not as an, as an indication he soon will. It's like the creator of the universe showing up and all of creation bowing at his arrival. It's kind of that, that kind of thing. And, and of course, there are many other scriptures in, in the Bible that point to the certainty of Christ's return. We can be certain that Jesus will return to earth just as he said, but we have no idea when, right? That's the uncertainty Jesus emphasizes. We are uncertain of the timing of his return, said Jesus, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. And this is where all the historical stuff, uh, context stuff comes into play. I mean, Uh, Historically, in in the church, this chapter in Mark has been a difficult passage to interpret. People have written all sorts of stuff about this. Um, And to be honest, I've never really gone super deep on this passage until this week, and it's it's very, very intriguing, right? In my mind, the best way to understand this is that all the signs of the first half of chapter 13 refer to the destruction of the temple. They they will lead up to that destruction, and then... um, Uh, kind of predict it and and would point to it. That's what Jesus was describing in that fig tree illustration that he gave in in the passage we read. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender 
and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. See, that these things refer to all those signs leading up to the destruction of the temple. Uh, you know that it is near, that that would be the destruction of the temple. When you see these things happening, you can predict that the destruction of the temple will, will, will be soon. This generation means Jesus' evil contemporaries, right? That's the way it's consistently used throughout Mark. And then the last line, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He emphasizes that earthly things come to an end, but his words, of course, won't. Remember the disciples uh, being stunned when Jesus said the temple would be destroyed because they understood that to be the center of the universe? It's like Jesus is saying, hey, all the things that human beings think are a really big deal are going to come to an end. But my words will never end. Or, hey, you all think the temple's the center of the universe? It's not. I am. You are currently speaking with the center of the universe. And my words will never go away. Now, I, I get that this sermon is a pretty tight argument so far, and you're thinking, thank you, Pastor John, for the theological book report. Um, but really, why does it matter? What, why, why does this matter? Well, if this is, indeed is what Jesus intended, that these signs pointing to the destruction of the temple, then it's kind of like Jesus is saying this. There will be some signs that foreshadow the coming destruction of the temple, and you'll be able to perceive those signs and see that destruction coming. But with regard to my return, there will be no such signs. So you'll see signs leading up to the destruction. But for the second coming, for his return, there'll be nothing. I think that's what he meant when he said this. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son in his incarnated form, right? But only the Father. You can see the destruction of the temple coming. But my return you will not see coming. So how does this um, apply on Monday morning? What difference does this make to you tomorrow <laughs> and, and in, in the rest of our, our lives, right? Um, I, I have three points listed, but I, I'm gonna insert a, a second first one here. Uh, you know, three points of application, really four now, under the he big heading of being faithful under pressure. Uh, so this is like pre-1, it's not number one, so don't go there quite yet, please. Um, Crystal and I celebrate our 12th anniversary today. You don't have, I'm not, no, thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, and, a, and a friend from church uh, recommended to us that the C.S. Lewis movie that's out right now, I don't know if you've seen this, it's called The Most Reluctant Convert. Um, I, I recommend it to you. Uh, it is masterfully done. And it, uh, it, like if you know some of Lewis's writing, you can kind of see how they took pieces of his writing and pieced it into the script. Uh, I think it was originally made as a play, um, but, but the, the, uh, the screenplay is, is just stunning. But using Lewis's own words and kind of put into a timeline of his coming to faith, just immensely convincing. You find yourself thinking, makes perfect sense to believe in Jesus. How could we not? 
right? Really, it's very, very compelling. And, and it left me uh, rethinking the sermon for today. So Jesus said, yeah, you'll see signs of the destruction of the temple, but you, you won't receive anything more with regard to my return. Turn it. it might be in 500 years, or it might be before I conclude my next sentence. You've got all the heads up you're gonna get. And the biggest point of application there is to turn to Jesus. Very simply. Like if we have never, uh, of our own accord, simply humbled ourselves before God and said, I need help. I need forgiveness. I need you. I can't figure this out. I mean, that is the first and most important thing. Jesus said it, the first lines of his public ministry. The time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent. All that means is change your thinking. Repent and believe the good news. Believe means align your life in Bible terms, not just believe facts in your head. Change your thinking and align your life to the things that Jesus has said. I know I've been kind of harping on this, but in my, in my own heart and spirit, I've been stuck on Jesus' story about the wise and foolish builders. And the only distinction being not whether they heard the words of Jesus, but whether they put them into practice. That's what distinguishes between the wise and the foolish. So the first point really is come to Jesus. <laughs> He's coming back real quick and his invitation stands open. And once we've done that, then there are these three points of application all under the heading of being faithful under pressure. First, ignore the end times hype. If indeed the point of this passage was Jesus saying, hey, you'll see a bunch of signs leading up to the destruction of the temple, but with regard to my return, you're not gonna get anything more than you've already got. What that means for us as Christians is whenever you hear kind of end times speculating, just turn it off. Because we have very clearly a, a, a record of Jesus saying, look, even I don't know. Again, there's more to talk about there. I take that to be in his incarnated state. But, but if Jesus doesn't know, how in the world can Larry, the crazy radio guy from, Calif- or from Colorado, like ha- have some idea of, of how this thing is gonna work? N- no, don't listen to that. Do not go there. It's unbiblical. Jesus made it really clear. He doesn't want us to do that. He wants our attention elsewhere. So rather than dabbling in things he doesn't want us to do, let's direct our energy toward things he does want us to do. Like humbly serve our neighbors. Like share the gospel winsomely and and clearly with other people. Praying for ourselves and for others. Seeking the Lord and blessing the world. Let's be about that work. Ignore the end times hype. Jesus was clear in saying, that there will be no more signs than we have already received. Two, make disciples. Right, I get that the Bible gives us multiple commissions, right? And what we've, we've kind of named the Great Commission is a very important one. At the end of Matthew, I, I understand the Great Commission to be Jesus not just giving us the goal, but also the strategy by which to achieve the goal. If the goal is disciples of all nations everywhere, The only strategy that's scalable to that size of goal is the reproduction of disciples, which is our mission statement as a church, growing disciples who make disciples. 
If we bank on a gathered congregation like this as being the sole way that people learn about Jesus and, and grow and begin to go, we lose. The only strategy that's scalable to the task at hand is disciples, followers of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus, making other disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who make other disciples and apprentices of Jesus. And we gotta get back to that. So make disciples. And three, keep watch. If you just look through chapter 13, it's all about the imperatives. Just our passage today, the imperatives are these. Be on guard. Keep alert. Keep watch. Do not let him find you sleeping. And finally, the last word, right? Watch with a big exclamation point right from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus will simply appear. You won't get an annual reminder. There will be no quarterly update, no two weeks notice. There won't even be a 10-minute calendar notification. I, I want you to really get your mind around this, to think about it and imagine it. There will be an instant and there will be a before the instant and an after the instant. And in that instant, everything changes. Just like that. I mean, the fog will lift instantaneously. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? because there will be nothing else to do. That's it. I mean, the power in which he will come will be so great that the very cosmos will be rattled. The sun and the moon lose their shine, stars falling from the sky, heavens shaking. Yes, Jesus is the humble-hearted servant lamb of God who took our place in dying on the cross, but let's not forget that he is the lion of Judah who rules over all things now and forever. He's the king of the universe, perfect in righteousness and judgment, unimaginable in, in power. And he will simply appear in an instant, in the blink of an eye. And what Jesus wants from us is faithfulness under pressure. I mean, he asked the question, right? When the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's a haunting question, isn't it? How are we doing with that? Jesus is looking for faithfulness under pressure. And and by pressure, I mean spiritual pressure here. And spiritual pressure can come in the form of wars and natural disasters, and it can come in the complete absence of wars and natural disasters. Spiritual pressure can come in really hard times, and spiritual pressure can come in really good times, where things seem all comfortable and and peaceful. Because of this, vigilance is required to stay awake, to stay alert, to keep watch, not be lulled to sleep. I had a good friend who recommended a a documentary. It's it's online, it's a YouTube thing, Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. It's a documentary about the church in Iran. And it is unbelievably compelling. One part that stands out in my mind is a, a young woman who came to Christ as an Iranian, had suffered tremendous persecution because of her faith. 
and there was a, a bit of a conversation and, and she talked about preferring her experience in Iran and being persecuted for her faith than the possibility of moving to the U.S. and becoming part of the church here. Because in her eyes, we're asleep. And her phrase was that she thinks there's a satanic lullaby being sung over the church in the United States. Wow. So stay awake. I get it, there's a fog. I get it, we're managing a bunch of stuff. Our calendars are full, there are way too many emails. Heaven will be great because email will be no more. I'm certain it's of the devil. (laughs) Stay awake. Don't let the flurry blur your eyes. This is why it's said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Whatever you have to do, don't fall asleep spiritually. Keeping watch is also a healthy habit. It's a practice to be engaged. So tell yourself the gospel every day. What does that look like for you? I mean, recall the words of Jesus, some of his last words on the cross. It is finished. Your debt is paid in full. He did that for you, for me, for for the world. Anyone who will say yes to it. Your debt's been paid in full. Remind yourself of your true identity in Christ. We are not who the world says we are. And they're like crazy messages everywhere all day long. Who we are is children of God in Christ, sons and daughters, princes and princesses, immortal beings. Awaken your spirit by worshiping God. Seek the Lord daily when he can be found. Direct your gifts to God and your heart will follow. Whatever you have to do, don't fall asleep spiritually. Keep watch. Four, you, we, do not know when that time will come. Maybe in 500 years. Maybe before we finish our next sentence. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Uh, Help us to keep watch. Help us to consider what that means for us and how we might do it. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.